My favorite line today from Susan was that other people collect things, I collect friends. Now you can see why Susan's been so successful in her career. I would tune in today. The depth of marketing knowledge on this one is, is high. Thanks again for taking the time. Remember, if you loved the episode, be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the episode. Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Earned. Today, we're going to learn from one of the best people I know in beauty, Susan Kim. Uh, Susan recently took over the helm as CEO of Kapari a little over a year ago. And your growth has been uh, nothing short of impressive, I'll say. Um, you've also been a good friend of mine and tribe for many years. Uh, thanks for joining the show, Susan. Thanks, Connor. I'm glad to be here. I am kind of amazed that it took us to like episode 40 to get you on the docket. This is like, we're way, way behind. Well, thanks for the invitation and the consideration. I'm happy to talk to you um, on air or off air. You know that. <laughs> Um, so for those that don't know you, I'm going to do a little bit of like bragging, right? So, um, so, My favorite part, by the way. <laughs> um, so for some background on Susan, she did her undergrad at USC where she was a presidential scholar for four years, then did five years in brand marketing at Mattel, followed by an MBA at Harvard, then eight years primarily at LVMH, but a little bit of time at L'Oreal and then SVP of marketing at Huda, who had recently raised money at a billion dollar valuation. Um, and then finally, CEO of Kapari, which I think this is part of the reason I wanted to delay your episode. I wanted to see if you were good or not at the, <laughs> before I like brought you on here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you're, I mean, the numbers are crazy. I was running all the numbers last night. You know, you're growing 95% year over year since the, in EMV, since the time that you started, you are the fastest growing brand out of the top 30 skincare brands you track and number three. That blew my mind. That one blew my Amazing, mind. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then went from number 62 to number 25, past Sunday Riley, Neutrogena, SkinCeuticals, et cetera. And then I know that you can't talk about it, but supposedly your sales have doubled in 2021, according to WWD and industry sources. Um, but yeah, congrats. It's like super impressive. Um, both so what you've done in the past, but particularly the last year. It's been a wild ride. Um, I am fortunate to have amazing founders um, and a brand that is so full of DNA and an amazing team. So it's not, you know, a one person show here by any means. And I'm just really grateful for the experience. Yeah, I can tell you, we now have at least three Kapari products in our shower and in okay. our bathroom that are actively used. So something's working. Yay. I hope to fill up your shower and your bath time and your self-care, Connor, um, and get you from three to 25. How about that? <laughs> um, awesome. Well, let's, I want to get into your background, but I think we should really, I really want to hear like you have cut your teeth as like a marketer, especially a forward leaning digital marketer. Um, and so I want to hear 2022, what's the plan you've got? very precious kind of marketing dollars. How are you spending those? Like, where are you investing? Where are you not investing? Give me the, give me the plan for 2022. Cause I know that's that this is planning time right now. Yeah. So we do have our budget set for 2022. We have high, high ambitions in terms of top line growth. Um, we have some really great tailwinds around, you know, skinification of body care. And there is just so much potential within body care. And as consumers, 
knowledge around ingredient profiles and formulations really deepen, um, there's an opportunity and a white space there with body care. So we are allocating our dollars where we believe that it's going to be the greatest impact on brand awareness because that's what marketing dollars are supposed to do. Uh, we do have a good chunk into tools like Try, which I believe we're paying way too much. <laughs> Some of our tools are much. But a, a good chunk, like I would say like 50% plus is going to be spent on really harnessing our community. So our community of content creators, a community of influencers across platforms. So I think it's a really exciting time because of the unknown. Um, also the ambiguity of iOS 14 and 15 that's coming out and how that plays into our entire funnel. So we're going hard after upper funnel. We're going hard after all of the platforms um, and especially leaning into TikTok. It's interesting that you, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that comment offhand, which is like, you know, using our marketing dollars to build awareness, which is what it's for. And actually, I would argue that like the prevailing wisdom right now is like very much focused on like bottom of funnel, right? Like, how yeah. do I, you know, how do I get last click attribution? How do I know exact ROI on this? Which is yeah. not, doesn't sound like the way that you spend your money. Oh my gosh. As e-commerce people, we are addicted to data. As a native yeah, yeah. D2C brand, we are addicted to data. And I have to go back to, especially in this time of ambiguity, like I have to go back to the basics, like marketing 101. A consumer has to be aware of your product and then be tipped into the basket. Right now, if we focus on that bottom of the funnel and that conversion, it doesn't make any sense for us because we're relying on the platforms to yeah. base the platforms are built to find the person who is most likely to tip into the basket. Yeah. That is not controlling your messaging. That is not really going back to the basics around positioning and hierarchy of communications and all of that within marketing 101, I would say. So I think that there's a real benefit to flipping that and thinking about it from upper funnel. And yeah. there's so much innovation in upper funnel right now, whether it be attribution for CTV or even editorial and PR or prospecting for direct mail, that there is a great opportunity there in upper funnel yep. and then letting the e-commerce team do what they're supposed to do, which is taking that pool of potential consumers and then tipping them into the basket. So I'm a big believer in brand awareness yep. and really creating a very strong distinction of what marketing is supposed to do versus e-commerce yeah no that makes sense um and especially for a brand like kapari right which is not like i think it's the people that like it are very passionate about it but there's a lot of people yeah. that just don't know who they are yet or who you guys are yeah. yet and so it's a pretty it's an important activity um does that does that mix shift for a brand like benefit that you were at like do you still think of it the same way if you're a big brand that most people know about versus kind of an up-and-comer you know, Connor, I started at Benefit when we were around like 250 million in sales. Yep. Um, and, you know, I was at Benefit for around eight years or so. And I worked for Sean Andre, who's amazing. Um, and I remember in my interview with him, he's like, yeah, we're going to be a billion dollar brand. We're going to sit along Mac and Estee Lauder. And like, we're talking about the big boys table. And I'm like, okay, cool. You're supposed to say that because you're the CEO. I get it. But we're like really small. So everything, like we used to never do brand tracking studies. And then it started after I started and we would measure how much brand awareness there was around benefit. And back then, and I'm talking like 10 plus years ago, 
back then, people who knew about benefit loved benefit because it made them laugh. They loved the products. They loved the problem solution, the packaging and the names and all of that. But not a lot of people knew about benefit. And that was one of the challenges. So I find myself to be in the same position that I was when I started at benefit. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is the richness of the DNA. One of the things I learned from Sean Andre, which I think this is one of your other questions, but one of the things I learned from Sean Andre over the years was um, the importance of DNA, a brand's yep. DNA, especially if you're asking a consumer to pay a prestige price point, right? Mm-hmm. You're not asking them to buy a $4 eyeliner or whatever it is. Like you're asking them to pay up for an emotional connection with a prestige brand. And so DNA is one of the things that we at Kapari try really hard to articulate, to cement, and to thread in every single thing that we do. Yeah, that makes sense. It's fun. It's weird to think about doing 250 million in sales and you're like, awareness is still our issue, right? Like that's kind of a, it's a crazy concept. It just gives you an idea of how big the market is, right? That oh, you can absolutely. have like many people buying your products and yet still the majority of people don't know you or haven't tried you at least. Um, yeah. So let's go back a little bit. So, you know, the thing I like to think about is like, who's listening to this? So the people that are listening to this, you know, occasionally there are people like you, right? That are experienced and have achieved a lot in their careers, but a lot of them are going to be people that are just getting started. Right. And so they're making decisions in their twenties or early thirties or whatever. And so I like to go back and say like, Hey, what were some of the things that you learned? And so one of the decisions that you made that I thought was interesting was going back to grad school, right? Going back to get your MBA at Harvard, um, after six to seven years, right. Versus, I think it's more common to be like three or four years. And I, I honestly considered this for a very long time, but ended up, you know, just had to focus on tribe. What was it that made you decide to go back? And would that be something that you would recommend to other people, um, that are, they're facing the same decision? Yeah, I mean, like, it definitely depends on an individual's um, idea of what they want to do and what they want to achieve. When I look back at that time, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it was so long ago. But when I look back at that time, I was really having a moment back then. I was in toys and entertainment, and I did some really fun things at Mattel, like created new brands and, like, really built a lot of dolls, a lot of passion dolls, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of glitter, too. I'm in that Um, place right now. My kids are, like, three and one and a half. And they, uh, I, the amount of toys that we have purchased is like out of control. Like, you know what's amazing? I went back and I found on eBay some of the toys that I created and bought it for my daughter when she was in that like age. And it was just like full circle, kind of surreal to know that like my daughter was playing with the toy that I created, you know? So that was crazy. I'm surprised they have that shelf life, right? Like, that they would stick around for that long. I mean, you're yeah, Ariel's pop-up castle. Look it up. Yeah. <laughs> that was my favorite toy I created. <laughs> no. So when I look back at that time, like I could have stayed up until forever. I love like just lighting up kids and like, you know, really surprising and delighting them. And I thought about, you know, what I wanted to do. And I back then thought that I wanted to become a management consultant. Like it just yeah. felt very sexy to me, like travel the world and like go in and like be a hired gun to like solve problems and like do all this like amazing analysis. Right. That yep. I thought like that was the world that I wanted to live McKinsey, in. Yeah. Exact BCG, like the whole thing. Right. Um, and I thought that grad school would be a really great reset. Right. So if you're changing 
industries or changing um, functions, it's a really great reset to be like, okay, actually what I really want to explore and do is not this, but something completely different. Obviously, I am not a management consultant today. And I'm really <laughs> grateful for that. Um, but it's a reason that there's very few lifetime management consultants. I think it's like you do it for a few years and then that is true. And, yeah. I think everyone who was a management consultant when I graduated and did like today, I'm aging myself again, is no longer a management consultant. No. Yeah. But um, going back to grad school really helped cement my love for marketing, my love for the consumer focus, but also like this bigger picture aptitude around business models, right? How to create sustainable business models and really look at it from a full focus around general management. And my years of experience, to your notes, six and seven, <laughs> three to four. Thanks for that, Connor. <laughs> really you know, some people are smaller movers than others. Like, I understand you're a little behind. Listen. And I put this in quotes, like, best practice is to go back three to four years because numbers will tell you the ROI on your investment in business school is because it's expensive, right? To yep. the opportunity yep. cost plus the cost of business school and living and all of that um, is greater when you get younger, right? So as a lot of these business schools and their business modeling is around getting people to have a high willingness to pay, they're going to convince you the earlier that you come in, the greater your ROI on it. Yep. I think I have great ROI on it. (laughs) (laughs) Great friends, but like, what's the ROI measure? It's ultimately like, you know, your life. And so for anyone listening today, like, you know, you'll hear things like, quote unquote, optimal time and quote unquote, best course of a career pathing, my advice is to be super purposeful about what you want to spend your precious time on and how you want to measure that time spent. So, you know, teach their own. I have a lot of thoughts around grad school. My time was amazing. I loved it. Um, I wouldn't have like some of the friends that I have, um, you know, today because of it. And, you know, the things that I struggle with today I reach out to my HBS network, especially my friend group, um, and really just think about, you know, the ways that they approach certain things, even though they may not be in the beauty industry. Some of them are D2C owners, some of them are founders in different ways, um, or, you know, just investors, for example. So, Well, and I think that, I, I think I mentioned on the podcast before, but I think one of the underrated elements that people don't take into consideration. And obviously this wasn't a decision at the time that you made it, but is, you know, kind of this idea of personal branding, right? So now people search for you and they find information about you very quickly without your being involved, right? And so I think that that kind of logo, right? Being attached to you actually matters more than it did in the past. Cause you didn't walk around with like a, you know, your resume stapled to your chest people saying like, hey, this is where I've worked, this is what I've done, da, da, da. So now I do think it takes on a heightened role. But, uh, and I do think that the idea of the reset seems to be kind of what I've found to be consistent in terms of people finding values. Like, yeah, I wanted to switch, I wanted to go here, I want to do that. So um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that logo while additive, um, and I tend to minimize it sometimes, which maybe I shouldn't. Uh, it's funny because when you go out to dinner in New York, yep. you throw a penny and you could hit someone who's an Atrius fan. <laughs> I mean, literally, we were sitting at a dinner table once in a restaurant and then like we heard the table next to us and they're like, Atrius, we're like, oh, 
wow, class of 2011 is right next to us. The further you get from Boston, the more rare it is, I guess. And especially with the last name Kim, it travels very far with my family. (laughs) (laughs) Earned some brownie points with that one, I'm sure. Um, so, uh, So if I'm reading the kind of, if I'm reading your background correctly, I think you spent quite a bit of time in the global markets before shifting to the US markets. Um, what, how did that kind of like, what differences did you notice, right? Between those two yeah. and then how did that impact your approach to the U S market? Cause obviously you didn't live in those markets, at least as far as I understand. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was at benefit, I started in the global marketing role, strategic planning and global marketing, and I was fortunate enough to visit so many countries, um, benefit operated in 52 different markets when I started. And, you know, it was a pretty difficult task of, I mean, as Annie Jackson would say, she would say like herding goats or herding cats, where each market had a different interpretation of what funny was or what LOL was or what the brand meant. And it was really being able to corral everyone together on a single stream around what the definition of the DNA is and the brand expressions in each individual market. And I really enjoyed that time because having a global lens when operating in a global brand is tremendously valuable for an organization. So when I look for marketers, I think about like how much empathy can you have around consumer sets that may be different than what you are used to or expecting. And those consumer differences, I mean, like the biggest mistake in marketing is to project your own beliefs and behaviors onto your consumer set. It's, you know, I see it all the time. Well, I like this. Yeah. Like my my sister likes this and I like that. Yeah. And I would use this face wash because it, you know, brightens. Whereas like that may not be what the consumer set or your target market may want. And so having this perspective around the differences of individuals that culminate into how you should think about your messaging and your hierarchy was beneficial for me. And as I think about that to, you know, the U.S. and how how that translates, the U.S. is a really big country. I mean, like each individual geographic region has their own culture. Um, The consumer in Kansas has a very different experience than the consumer in here in San Diego, for example. So having this hyper awareness of those dynamics will always serve marketers and business owners, I believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's tough, right? It's tough to get out of like, this is the way that I see the world. And so why don't people see it the way that I see it? I've always found that those notions go away when you just talk to people, right? You just like have Mm -hmm. conversations, you get feedback, you look at data and then you don't, you don't, you come in and you kind of test your, your theories, right? Exactly. So, um, yeah, which it seems like super critical. I mean, it's like, frankly, it's even critical in the U.S. market where like we live here, but I don't know what most people's experiences in the U.S. are, right? I only have vague notions. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you spent a lot of time at LVMH, obviously benefit specifically there. Um, and I do think LVMH is a bit, it's uh, become a bit of a gold standard when it comes to yeah. kind of finishing schools, uh, particularly on the luxury side, but we'll say beauty, fashion, luxury, kind of all those yeah. sectors. Um, what do you think were some of the most impactful learnings for you during your time at Benefit um, and as well as at LVMH? Like what stuck out? Like why why have they had such consistent success over the, over the decades? Yeah, um, I think, you know, with LVMH, what they do really well is this idea around maisons, right? Each individual maison has their identity and their DNA, and they're very big on DNA. 
right? Yep. And so they don't do things like shared services or they force you into a big RFP with agencies and suppliers and all of that. They let each individual Maison operate independently. So I wasn't talking to the fresh people about how they approach marketing. I wasn't talking to, you know, some of the other brands around collective shared resources. Like that was not a thing. And this independence really allowed brands to thrive on the basis of their DNA. And so working for someone like Sean Andre, he was like, be bold, take risks, as long as it's rooted in the DNA. I would come to him and be like, hey, I think we should do vending machines that look like pink buses. And he'd be like, cool. <laughs> I still see those everywhere. And I like, you guys, so cute. you killed it with that one. Like it they're was so cute. Uh, and they're, they're, uh, Margin contributive. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. They're big billboards and margin contributive, which is great. Um, you know, like he gave us a fresh runway in testing and iterating and learning and then doing better and better and better. And I still hold that today in terms of this environment that we're in. How can we test, learn, do better? Test, learn, do better. And so I think LVMH as an umbrella company allows individual brands to be able to do that you do have to be very confident in knowing like what your brand is, the essence of your brand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think back at my time at Benefit, you know, we had visuals like their real mascara that was like art noir, black and white with like, you know, a model um, with a little bit of tongue in cheek around the comment, they're real. Um, <laughs> we like really pink, like boutiques with, that was like really fun with like big bold lips and big bold brows. Um, and, visually there's not a strain there right there's not a connective strain there but you could see how each individual element could be connected from the same brand because it was that tongue-in-cheek sort of lol factor which was you know a big part of the dna there yeah i think that in the discussions i've had with people that element as well as kind of the long-term view which i think gets into this concept of dna is is the thing that stood out to me right about yeah. the way that lvmh approaches things and i think it's actually it's actually a pretty stark contrast um particularly more in the beauty sector than in the fashion sector but if you were to look at the way that um some of the larger strategics operate it's almost like a strip mining operation right you have this brand it's growing very quickly you buy it you blow it out you strip it down you like you know cut costs yeah. And then you just ride it for as long as you can until the brand dies, right? And yeah. like, or it just becomes, you know, it just continues at, a, at whatever rate. It's just such a different approach. Um, yeah, it's 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 unique. I think I think wow. it's the right way to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like if I was a management consultant today, I would be like, do it the L'Oreal way or the Estee Lauder way. Like, go in, optimize and efficiency, and you know all of that. But it takes a lot of um, risk as well as just confidence in brands that have strong dmas right yeah and like how do you really maximize that versus below the line optimized operations yeah for sure well you spent some time at another brand that's got pretty strong dna pretty strong characters at huda yeah. right yeah. um so i'd love for you to talk about that time obviously what it's like to work with her and to work with the fantastic team but then also you know it's a very interesting time in that they had taken on a very large fundraising round and I'm sure they're very long-term thinking, but yeah. at the same time, they took on this very large valuation in a time when makeup as a category 
was facing some pretty significant headwinds, right? So um, talk to me about kind of navigating that, right? What that was like, as well as, you know, just generally what it was like to work with somebody that's such a, you know, such a powerhouse. Yeah, I mean, like that kind of, frankly, that's such, such a powerhouse, right? Their whole family. Yeah, Um, that time was super exhilarating. And also, I was in perpetual jet lag because I was going to Dubai every six weeks. So that was, that was fun. Uh, For anyone who doesn't have jet lag, like that's a freaking like superpower. I don't know, like how people do it. Um, I used to be able to do it. I can't do it the same way I did before. I like can't, I can still do it, but it's, it's tough. I love my sleep. I don't get much of it, but I love my sleep. Anyways, um, it was awesome. I mean, we, I was employee number two in the LA office. We were in a WeWork, um, you know, we built teams, we built processes, we brought, like, we built things, you know, and it was incredible spirit of just doing great work and getting stuff done with a great team, like Mike McNeil and Natalie Cristo. And, you know, I was responsible for, I mean, my title was SVP of marketing, but I was responsible for U.S. marketing, global digital, global e-commerce, global e-tail. Oh, and by the way, why don't you also open Asia, <laughs> Korea and China? Yeah. yeah. So wow. that was... You guys launched so, Wishful too, right? You launched, in your, you launched, launched Wishful during that time. We launched Wishful. We also had Kayali. I mean, it was a pretty phenomenal time of fast growth and lots of projects. Um like we built a massive e-commerce business and we brought together her blog and her e-com into one site. We brought the payment processing from Dubai to the US. Uh, we did it with three people, this whole like e-commerce machine. And that e-commerce business is like much bigger portion of the pie than it was when I started. So super yep. proud of that. But this idea of like rolling up your sleeves and just doing it yourself because who else is going to do it? Right. And it is yep. this indie spirit that I just absolutely love. And I'm, quite frankly addicted to um Huda and her family Alia and Mona are just amazing people I mean you know I would say to Huda like oh we should post this or we should do that and like she knows her audience so well she will say oh it won't resonate with my audience or oh like they'll find that funny or you know like she just knows her feed and her community super, super well. Yeah. One of the things I took away from that was like this closeness with the consumer is so important to the essence of a prestige beauty brand, especially as you're thinking about all the different ways that they're, you know, have a touch point with the brand, that direct line is such a valuable asset. And I say valuable assets like a business person, but like Huda just knows her fans. Like she knows them, yeah. you know, she, and she knows who's going to comment and she knows like who's going to repost. Um, one of the first things that I did when I came to Kapari as a result of that learning was to get all the passwords to all of our platforms and just moderate on our platforms. And I mean, my social team is like deathly scary whenever I do that. <laughs> but but um, for the most part, like, really getting to know the consumer, spending a little bit of time on customer service and spending time in the stores is so, so important. Like you're not in a vacuum anymore, you know? And so charge your girl 777, always comments and likes on our posts, like every single one, you know? And like knowing who the super fans are and knowing the community, like that's super important. Yeah, for sure. It's like, I mean, I've talked about it a dozen times, but like, the 
special thing about the internet is the ability to connect directly with your customers, regardless of physical boundaries, um, in a way that's meaningful, right? And that you couldn't yeah. do when everything was retail. And so um, it's just consistent with what we see work. So let's hop into Kapari. Obviously, you mentioned it. Um, you know, the last year, and Kapari was a great brand before, but I think the last year has been like really impressive. I mean, I, st I cited the stats earlier. Um, you know, when you came in, um, you know, I would, I would hope that a lot of this, you know, came from you, right? So when you came in, what were some of the things that you saw opportunity for kind of growth, improvement, whatever you want to call it, that yeah. you implemented that you think had, you know, had an impact on it? Yeah. I mean, like, I would like to say like my impact was like day one, but like it wasn't, trust me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of long-term things that needed to be, you know, done um, and not fixed, but really focused on. Um, and then some short-term things that, you know, won some immediate ROI. So the long-term things, and this continues to evolve every single day, but it's that articulation of the DNA. Kupari is one of the richest when it comes to the DNA. I remember I learned about the brand because my team, my very young and very cool team at Benefit back then was like, have you heard of this brand? It's amazing from San Diego. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just keep tabs on this brand. Just keep my eye out for it. Um, and I remember thinking that it just is so rich in DNA, founded in La Jolla with four founders and really this clean way of living, articulating that into clean formulations as one of the first beauty brands that was super clean in the category, like some five years ago, right? Yep. Um, when there wasn't this big category, you know, explosion. Um, so we continued to work on articulating the DNA and, tor you know, torturing my founders and being like, why the wave? Like, why the turquoise? Like, why coconuts? And really torturing them, quite frankly. Um, and then, you know, building out a product architecture that is, specific for prestige beauty, which is where we operate in, right? Um, we had come out with a couple of products that was within personal care and our deodorant took off and it's an amazing formula, but that's not necessarily the business model that we want to operate in today. We are a prestige body care and skincare brand with personal care as an extension of our current lineup. And how do we think about our assortment and our architecture in the long run to fulfill that consumer demand in the places where we sell. And so really being able to clarify that and create a framework around that for the long term has been helpful, I believe. Um, and then organic awareness. Again, like people who know us love us, but not a lot of people know us, right? Um, so organic awareness through our community and really leveraging all the different ways that we could increase that top line awareness. Um, I also am a big believer in being the owner of our own destiny and articulating mm -hmm. what our destiny is. And because our D2C business is such a big percentage of our total business, we were able to drop newness when we wanted, how we wanted, mm -hmm. and help prop up that traffic issue in the era of iOS 14, right? Yeah. And so we see it in the results. You named the EMV, but also our social engagement is crazy these days. Um, we were last among the brands that we tracked in the beginning of 2020 in terms of engagement. And this year alone, we've garnered the number one position in engagement four months out of the year. So it's resonating with our consumers as we think about newness and core and that mix. 
And we're continuing to ride on that wave. And 2022 is, you know, really when you're going to see some amazing stuff from us. Let's dive into that organic awareness piece. Cause I think that the, just, you know, the results over the last year are like super impressive. And obviously that's something that we pay a lot of attention to. And there's a lot of people that want to do what you did, right? Which is go from number 60 to number 20, whatever, and blah, blah, blah. Number 12 in March. Just wanted to yes. point that out. Yes. <laughs> just wanted to point that out. <laughs> Heading in the right direction too. So uh, so get real tactical with me there. Actually, before we get that, you, you said D to C is such a big portion of your business. How big? Is it 10%? I'm going to tell you that. Come on, Connor. Why are you asking me that? I'm not going to tell you that. I got to ask. Okay. Well, uh, I, I think your point though, on <laughs> not being beholden, I tried not being beholden to, you know, some third party because you control your own destiny is like a really big benefit of like being so strong, uh, direct to consumer. Um, okay. Let's go back to awareness. I tried there. Let's go back. <laughs> and, uh, see if it, let it slip. Um, so awareness, um, what has worked? Like, what are some of the things that you guys are doing that you think are really innovative? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's back to the basics, I believe around, um, the consumer journey, the consumer loop and really creating that loop around advocacy and back to the basics around positioning, product positioning and hierarchy of communication. People will say, oh, try this tactic and try that tactic and try this platform or, you know, try this tool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And like tactics and levers are good. However, I think fundamentally your brand has to not only really resonate with your target audience, but have the right assortment, the right pricing, the right distribution, all the basics, like the four P's of marketing, right? Um, To then add a layer of tactics. And so if you do tactics without having that foundational work, like it's going to fall flat. Like, Oh, we tried that tactic a year ago and it didn't work Well, a year ago. Like, you know, your framework or your architecture may not have been in the right place. Right. So I think about that a lot. Like when can we start utilizing some, you know, really amazing tactics. And I have a couple of ideas, um, but we're not there yet you'll start to see some of it in this year once we get our architecture and assortment and pricing right. And so there's a lot of work done on the foundational pieces. And it's interesting because being able to affect that right now is super exhilarating and so much like framework that it's super fun to dive into. Yeah, it's funny the way that you talked about that. I mean, it just makes me think about this podcast, right? Like this podcast is a tactic. And like, if we had tried to do this when we started Tribe, it wouldn't have gone anywhere, right? Because we didn't know anybody. Nobody knew us. We had no credibility, et cetera. But now, because, you know, we've built rela- I, we've built relationships over years and years and years and years, it just makes it much easier to actually do it. And we built an audience that trusts us, right, when we yeah. talk about things. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Um, thinking of tactics in context of like who you are, where you are in the journey, like, what are you actually able to do versus not do is, uh, is super important. Um, interesting. Okay. So I'm going to pull a quote that I don't even think you like, but I'm going to pull it that you, uh, you were quoted on that traditional advertising does not work. Um, so first <laughs> in your article saying that you don't have to agree with it. Cause I know how the press works. It's not always a perfect quote, but, um, 
one, at what point did you start kind of realizing that, right? That's the first question. Second question is, um, do you guys dabble at all? Have you tried anything out? Like I know that what was interesting, I was just talking to a brand called Fair Harbor, which is fantastic. Uh, yeah. Men's apparel brand. And he's like, you know what? We started doing radio advertising and he's like, it kills it. Like just absolutely kills yeah. it. So have you tried dabbling in anything um, and is that <laughs> in the future? Yeah, listen, I started my career as an intern for BBDO in Chicago for uh, Wrigley Gums. Okay. And, and back then I was recording radio messages or project managing that, right, as an intern. Yeah. So I'm really aging myself here. Um, and I think I said that in the context of traditional advertising in, you know, the era of digital disruption yep. and leaning yep. into that disruption. So yep. I agree with my former self to a certain extent, but I also disagree with my former self. <laughs> um, given the current challenges around performance marketing and targeting and segmentation, I think that there's real innovations that's happened over the last couple of years because traditional advertising without signaling, right, um, and without attribution is... I don't think is a worthy endeavor. Now there's so much innovation around CTV and programmatic and PR and editorial, even and you know direct mail. I mentioned that what's old is new again, and there's yep. a real yep. benefit that I found when you start integrating messaging and integrating platforms. And so we've tested a few things here and there. Um, what I would say is it's not just the tactic itself, but it's the, what you're communicating about. Um, I saw a piece of, you know, artwork that was just, you know, a whole bunch of products. And then was just like, give the gift of whatever the season. Yep. And I was like, no, like, let's go into the product. People want to know, like, what are they supposed to do? Like, it's supposed to be like, here's this amazing product and here's what it does. And it's going to solve this problem. And you should believe me because of A, B, and C, like give them a very strong purpose and a very strong, you know, CTA call to action yeah. of what they're supposed to do, you know? So it's not only the platforms, but also, and the media, but also what you're communicating and the piece of creative that you're communicating with. Totally. The, uh, it's so funny. Cause I just have this fair Harbor story fresh in my head. He, uh, they, so they create these, it's like, it's all out of plastic bottles. They're like, you know, uh, they originally did swim trunks and whatever else. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's funny though. What people actually latched onto is like, we have a liner and it's like a different kind of liner and it's like anti-chafing. Like it doesn't chafe. He's like, so he's like, we just started like pushing that messaging. Cause that's what people latched onto. And he's like, yes. that's what works in radio ads. It's like, we have anti-chafing, like swimwear and people just like, you know, but it's like you said, like, what, what am I going to get out of this? Right. And like that direct call to action worked really well for him. Um, Shaping is a big issue. <laughs> you, know, but like, our, you can use our deodorant for uh, anti-shape. Exactly. And it's funny. Yeah. He just didn't, that wasn't the plan. That wasn't what he thought was going to be the benefit, but it, it kind of emerged. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about leadership a little bit, right? So you've talked about the C, you talked about the CEO of Benefit, who I is possibly the one that I've heard about the most. I don't know if I'm just too in the benefit community and so I just hear about <laughs> yeah. him all the time. But um, but I would actually turn the mirror a little bit and say that I've always heard really good things about you as a leader, right? Yeah. 
And so, huh, surprising. <laughs> I want the names of the people who didn't say good things about me. <laughs> um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about what your approach is to leadership as well as management, right? So managing teams, managing people, like, what does that look like? What are your systems? Do you do weekly one-on-ones? Do you do like, what, what have you found that works well for you in managing and so funny. Like, you know, what's so funny. Like I never, like some people ask me like, what's your leadership style? And like, and I, I don't think I have one. <laughs> I just yeah, like, totally. me, like, I guess my leadership style is authentic. I don't know. Um, so that's, that's a thing, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, look, like some people collect purses, some people collect watches. I collect friends. <laughs> like that is my thing. And like the best parts of me is, you know, reflected in my community. And I'm grateful you're a part of it. I'm grateful for Toto and Annie Jackson and Corey from Mouth and Melanie from Burson. You know, I really think about, you know, how we land with each other, not only in this community, but with my team and also with my board, right? And we all grow up in a world where you're pitted against one another, right? You're graded on the curve. You see dramatizations of school saying, look to your left, look to your right. One of you won't be here, you know? And I've seen it in real life where people want to like, quote unquote, take down like other people or like, you know, they're competing against other people in a really negative way. Um, I truly, truly believe that it does not take away from you when you build up others. Um, And actually it adds to, you know, the richness of life. I truly believe that. And so you know, as builders of businesses, um, you know, we're so keen every day to set goals and hit our KPIs. And in the context of life and leadership, I really think about, you know, how will we be measured at the end of all of it, right? And how do we think about hitting those life KPIs (laughs) saying, you know, that it was a success. Like, um, there's this, there is this quote from Clayton Christensen, who was a Harvard professor of mine, and he recently passed away last year, and he was famous around this framework for life KPIs, right? And he said, like, think about the metric by which your life will be judged and make a resolution to live every day so that at the end, your life will be judged as success, you know? And we're so keen on, like, you know, closing that collab or making that product or hitting, you know, in stock, you know, percentages or like hitting launch, you know, uh, metrics. But at the end of the day, like we're all just people trying to do the best we can and, you know, build on one another. And so that kind of threads everything I do, whether it be with family, with friends, my team. So I guess in a roundabout way, I don't really have a leadership style. (laughs) I think what you described is one, right? And I think uh, people do tend to be, you know, I mean, because it's natural, right? It's survival, like you, you're short-term focused. And in a lot of ways, it's funny you say like, you know, and I've, I've read a few of Clayton's books and he's fantastic. No, no. And um, uh, it's interesting to say like, you know, how you will be judged, right? At the end of your life. And actually, I think like the judge that matters the most is like you right? Like how will you judge your own life at the end? Yeah. Uh, because that's kind of, I think to me, ultimately the, the toughest judge, at least in, in my, for, for myself. Um, yeah, I will say that like on my tombstone, I will want the <laughs> number one fastest growing. <laughs> <brand>. <laughs> 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 I 
Well, that will also, that is part of the judgment criteria at the end. Uh, roll it out. What was your EMV from 20? Exactly. <laughs> what were your tactics? Absolutely. Well, let's, I want to ask one more question and then we'll do a fun end of show question that was actually uh, furnished by Toto. So, uh, so you're going <laughs> to, um, so, you know, you guys went through a really big rebranding, repackaging, yeah. rethinking of the brand. It just launched in the last week or two, or I think recently you're doing the kind of a partial rollout during the, the holidays and then full rollout afterwards. Um, and it seems like a lot of that commitment is around like, you know, sustainability, the environment, right? Clean beauty, these kinds of things. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I took the time and looked up where your husband works as well. And he also works in clean energy. Yeah. Uh, like their, their motto is clean, reliable energy, affordable for everyone in the world. Yeah. So I have to imagine that this has shaped not only part of the reason, probably why you chose Kapari in the first place. Right. But also has to have been part of the reason that, or part of the, the, the rationale or the, not the rationale, but kind of the reason that you pushed this direction was both personal, personal, as well as brand DNA. Listen. I would never give my husband the satisfaction to know that he influences me whatsoever. That is the signs of a good, strong marriage, okay? <laughs> the competition, okay? <laughs> Connor, you're setting me up here. No, he, he works for a company called Bloom Energy. They are doing fantastic, fantastic things. And, you know, he's been in energy and renewable energy for a very long time. And he talks about kilowatt hours all the time. <laughs> you fall asleep, like two minutes in to the, the conversation around kilowatts. Uh, so that's really fun. But, you know, while I would love to take credit for really driving the sustainability um, piece of our brand DNA, that has always been yep. part of the brand, even before me, right? Um, and so Kupari has always been focused on sustainability. We live right by the ocean um, here in La Jolla. We're right by La Jolla Cove and we see the ocean every single day and we're really inspired by it. So that kind of threads into the sustainable piece, but also the transparency of our new packaging into seeing our formulation. Um, and we're able to drive it further with that repack by diversifying our supply chain, working with partners and choosing who we work with based on what are they able to do from a sustainability piece? It's really hard to have transformative supply chain um, that is anchored in sustainability, right? Mm -hmm. I think the industry has come a long way since years before, but I think there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and more than anything, like, you know, this is a core tenant of our DNA, and we're going to be thinking even beyond just packaging, because that's one component of sustainability, right? We're thinking about upstream and downstream and all the ways that we're impacted and impacting our footprint, but this deep sense of responsibility, not only as a brand, but as an industry, right? And really thinking about how we collectively work together to combat some of the things that are happening with um, climate change. And I think Melanie has done a phenomenal job by corralling all the beauty brands together as an industry for Code Red for Climate and continuing that journey. Yep. And that's Melanie Bender, who's the president first. Yeah. Who has amazing brows, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about brows. 
I've talked about Melanie before, but we tried to hire her as our first kind of head of business development, sales, et cetera. And she couldn't do it because her husband, I think, was getting his PhD from uh, UCLA. And so she couldn't be in. We thought being in the same location was important back then. And uh, yeah, so definitely jealous we didn't get her, but she's awesome. Um, So let's do one fun end of show question. This one comes from Toto, who's a previous guest, SVP of marketing or global marketing at Huda, or not Huda, right? Used to work with you. One of my favorite people. Yes. So he wants to know. You know, and so for those that don't know, Susan dresses up her entire family, just finished Halloween, dresses <laughs> up her entire family in a variety of themed costumes. But he wants to know what your most elaborate costume was in terms of like time spent oh, making it. Um, and this doesn't have to be during the family time. This could be in previous years. Like what was the one that you spent yeah. the most time on and what, what did that process oh, look like? Yeah. You know, um, these costumes were at first really fun to do. And now like they're a burden because they're like, oh, we can't wait for the family holiday card. And we can't wait for the Halloween shoot. Now it's a burden. I have to make like, for Halloween, I have to make a family costume. And then the kids get their individual costume because they don't want to dress up like Squid Games. You know, they're like, (laughs) Um, that was this past year. It was like so inappropriate. (laughs) But um, I think the hard one was I had dressed up my um, daughter as Daenerys from Game of Thrones, long blonde wig, chiffon dress, little dragon and all. So that was a fun one. Um, And then when my son was around two, I dressed him as Carl Lagerfeld with the wig (laughs) and the gloves and the tuxedo. I think those are my two favorite. Uh, by the way, he's six and still has no idea who Carl Lagerfeld is. So yeah. I was like, you'll get it later, you know? Um, and then, I don't know, for the holiday cards, those are hard because, like, I, like, Photoshop myself and, like, I do have a green screen that I make my kids do individual pictures and then I layer them on. So there was this one Christmas card where you know, my son was chewing on an electrical cord. Uh, my daughter was lighting, you know, the painting on fire. And I was just making martinis with my <laughs> husband. <laughs> oh, man. Those are fun. I love it. Well, I really appreciate you taking out the time today. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody else learned a lot as well. And uh, congrats. We got a little deep. We got a little philosophical, Connor. Yeah. Like... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was a good time. I knew it would be. I just can't believe it took us 40 episodes to do it. Also, those numbers are wild. Like, number one, number one. Like, that's pretty good. I want you to text Joe at use of people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll appreciate that one. Uh, awesome, right. Susan. I appreciate it. Thanks, Connor. Bye. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.